So we've heard the word of God read in our ears, and the Holy Spirit applied in our hearts and lives. We should glorify our Heavenly Father. We're going to look specifically at verses 10 and 11. I'll read those here. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. One thing we get here, we see it even with the word of brotherly love, is that the church, one of the images, one of the metaphors that's used in Scripture to describe or help us understand what the church is, what the people of God are, is a family. This family is a creational metaphor. God's made the world to work. He built the world, and he put Adam and Eve in it, and he said, here's a husband, and here's a wife, here's an Adam, and here's an Eve, and they're going to be a family, they're going to have children, they're going to train up those children, and this is the way things are going to work. And those children are going to grow up, and they're going to have babies, and they're going to, and this, that's kind of the way things go, right? You get that. Um, that's a standard reality that everybody deals with. Right? Nobody's outside of that reality. Every human being has been born of a woman. They didn't come any other way. Yeah, that's how it happened. And um, anyway, so we have, we have this family situation that everybody understands, and God says, okay, good, you understand that, or at least you do to some degree. My kingdom's like that. My church is like a family. Now, there are different metaphors and just, there are different ways to refer to the church and talk about it. Uh, the church is you know, even the word church by itself, or ecclesia, they're called out ones. Right? That's what the church means. The word church or ecclesia means those who are called out. Well, called out of what? The world. We're called out of the world into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're the, we're the called out ones. Uh, we have a body metaphor. There's the idea of being called out of the world. That's what the church is. But also the body, just in, as we had read earlier on here, I think in, maybe we can find it here. Verse 4, up in chapter 12. For as, we are, as, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Right? We talked about the, the metaphor of a body. We all get what a body is. We have them. Okay? God gave them to us, just all for free. By the way, this whole apparatus you got going here, eyeballs and all the stuff that you do, that's all for free. Right? That's just given to you. Now, if you, you could take all the money in the world, and you could try your whole life to make something like this with all the money and all the expertise and all the technology and never get close to what you have for free, that you're just given. Right? We, we kind of think, well, this is nature. Of course we have this. No, it's not. It's God's nature. It's God's reality. It's God's creation. And he's equipped you mightily. Tremendous equipping just in your own Body. So we, we get bodies, we have them. And God says, good, my church is kind of like that. It's kind of like a body where, at least as we're talking about, each, each part is necessary. Right? Each, each part serves the whole body and they serve together. But the family here is a metaphor uh, that, again, we get from, from nature. We get it from the way God's made the world to work. Families are the natural building block of everything. Right? The state comes out of the, out of the, the family. The church is, it comes out of the family. The family is this fundamental building block. And, uh, and the family is uh, important nowadays. It's always under attack. I mean, the, the family is always an institution that's under attack because it's so fundamental. And if people want to reshape society after their own image or their own idols uh, necessarily have to deal with the family uh, and often just simply break it apart 
makes me think of Brave New World or something like that. If anyone's read Aldous Huxley's little book, it seems popular with 1984. Um, but the part of the issue there is they have broken up the family. They organize things where the family is not in existence anymore. Uh, and in fact, they look back with disgust at those days when little babies would cry out for their mothers and how gross that was. There's, there's this kind of disgust around family relations. Well, they've effectively dis- remade society because they destroyed the family. Right? And, and so the, the family's always in the crosshairs, and it certainly is now. Many of us have had experiences in our families that aren't terrific. Right? That's kind of how families are. And I think that's kind of part of it. We have this, like, this weird romantic often discussion about families. Like families where you can just be together and you can be yourself and you let your hair down and everyone just kind of gets along. It's like, well, sometimes, right? Uh, but not all the time and certainly not for all people. Sometimes family is a, a, a war zone. Sometimes the family is a place where you've got to get away from it. And you've got to look back and, and have your mind entirely reconditioned on what family actually is because you had such a bad one to begin with. Okay, and that's, that's part of the experience, that, the broad experience of people. So when we come to, it's the same thing, by the way, when we talk about God as a father. Right? You want to talk about someone and say, hey, listen, let me tell you about God as our Heavenly Father. And they're like, my father was terrible, and he did this, and he did that, and he was a ter- you know, super jerk. So, okay, well, I get it, and he's a sinner, and men are fallen. But the idea of a father, what a father should be, right? what a father actually is insofar as he's a father, that's what we're talking about. So you, you run into problems with people if, they had, if they've had tough family lives. And really the truth is most of us have. Because you get a bunch of sinners and you put them all in one house, you're going to have problems. That's kind of what happens. Okay? But just because you're berated by blood or adoption or anything else doesn't, doesn't take the problems away. Right? It's, it's really the grace of God working in the families that's, that works on those problems and moves us toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But people who have problems with family... People have problems with parents, and say, okay, we get that. That's part of the shattered, fallen reality we live in, but the kingdom of God is like a good version of that. I think that's something we have to keep in mind, a good version, a faithful version of a family. And there are times, hopefully, in your own families, where you've, the families function that way. It's all, it's all running well. Everyone's doing their part, and, and, and you can sense that this family's running well, and that there really is, and this is important because this is the point, love. There really is love in the family. Right? Now, it's easy enough to look around our own families, especially, I think, as we have a range of kids, and find that the love looks a lot more like antagonism right, most of the time. Uh, there's, there's a lot more, like, you know, needling and uh, ribbing going on, and, and that, that's, you know, fighting and squabbling, and we get that a lot. And, I, you know, I only had one brother. He was five years older than me, so he knew how to pound me. Um, and I knew how to squeal, and that's kind of the, those were our, those were our ways about living. Uh, that's how we did it. And, uh, and it's interesting now because my, now my brother and I are very very close, and his friendship and his brotherhood to me is very important. Uh, but for many years, not so much. You know, I didn't I didn't really care what Matt went and did. And um, so anyway, looking at my own example, we're talking about brotherly love. That's the first thing, right? Um, think about the love this way, and maybe as parents, it's a little easier. Because you have this child either coming out of your body or coming into your home one way or another. And what happens as a parent, what happens to you as a parent, is you can't help but love this little one. It just comes. It's not something you decide to do. You know, decide to love this little one. You just simply do. And I think as kids, we don't, coming up, don't really get that. You love your parents, but that's, you know, 
you don't sit there and think about how you love your parents, right? You don't reflect on the nature of that love. Hopefully you do more as we talk about this morning. And the nature of a family and how it is that God just puts it in your heart to love. That you just simply, you care for these people. You care about their well-being. Uh, they're, they're knit to your heart. They're knit to uh, the things that are important to you. So we want not a bad family in view here, but a good family. That love one another. And of course, all families have struggles and all families fight and things like this. Uh, but we want to look past that and say, what is the, the deep love that we have as parents to children, as siblings together, um, looking up to our parents and our grandparents, the whole family, right? This, this extended reality of the family. One that's centered in mutual love, honor, and a common zeal. Listen to that. This family, this good family, is one that's centered in mutual love, honor, and common zeal, which is exactly what we're going to see from our text here. So look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly love. Or maybe, uh, and by the way, as I mentioned before, all these are hard to translate because they're just like little bullet points without verbs and sometimes difficult even to quite pull together in English. Be, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love. The church is a family. It's supposed to have a genuine love. We, as members of the body of Christ, are brothers one with another. Okay, we have an elder brother, Jesus the Christ. He's not our father. He is our brother. Right? He has a father to whom he's reconciled us. Right? He comes and says, the father sent him that we should be his brothers and be sons of the living God. Okay, so Jesus is our elder brother. And Jesus comes, like we read this morning, has his, uh, I'm trying to think of what the word was, his mission, his uh, life purpose there. It's his life purpose to, not to be served, though listen, could the Son of God, God eternal, come and be served on earth? Could he come and make a kingdom where he's the man and everyone just brings stuff to him? And Yeah, he could, but he didn't do it that way. He, that comes, that will come, but that comes through his servanthood, indeed through his death. His sacrificial death. He comes and pours himself out. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay? That's how it is that we are brothers in Christ is because we're in Christ. And that makes us bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and therefore bone of each other's and flesh of each other's flesh. We are family in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God has come. That's what God has sent his son to do, to draw us into this divine family, into the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, eternal. He's come to draw us into that familial love. We need to be involved in each other's lives. That's part of what a family does. That's one of the breakdowns or the, the, um, the dysfunctions, I guess. That we, have. We, like, we used to like that terminology, a dysfunctional family. I don't really hear it anymore. Uh, so I always thought it was kind of a fun word. A dysfunctional family being a family that doesn't function correctly. It doesn't work right. Uh, so something gears are busted over here, and it's just not functioning. It's not right. Um, but we have uh, to be a function. I think one of the major dysfunctions is a lack of interest and engagement in one another, uh, the, the lack of reaching out. I may I may care about you, but I'm embarrassed to reach out, or I'm too busy, or we can't spend time together, growing as a family and sharing each other's uh, burdens, sharing each other's joys, sharing each other's lives. And that's a struggle I think for each of us, uh, where we tend to be, I think. Individual people. We kind of have our own things. We have like our privacy. Uh, but people of God, we're a family. And if we know anything about family, we know they get in your business. Yeah, that's part of what family does. They, we're all wrapped up in each other's business. 
uh, we all you know, live in the same house and share the same food and share the bathrooms. We're, we, we're in each other's business. Christians, we need to be in each other's business. And not in, not in nosy, busybody sort of ways. Right? Um, I'm not saying you should you know, go around and talk about everyone else's business like it's yours. That's not it. But we should be engaged in each other's lives as family. Because God has made us a family together to be involved. Hebrews 13 says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality, because through this, some have received angels as guests without knowing it. Right? So this brotherly love, this kind of love we have as a family, one for another in the Church of Christ, expresses itself in hospitality. It expresses itself in bringing each other in, and in being brought in to someone else's house, into their life, and sharing it with them, and uh, in, in, in being hospitable. And God requires that of us, and it's a great blessing, the hospitality of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have brotherly love, being devoted to one another and brotherly love. And there is, a, I think, a, there's a word here that's uh, to one another. We have it in both in this phrase and the next phrase, that this is a communal reality. Okay? This is something we share together as members of the church, as those baptized into Christ Jesus, into his church, is that we have a brotherly love, we're devoted to it, it's something near to our hearts that we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and be involved in each other's lives. One aspect in that is the next, the next phrase that's there in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor, as the English Standard Version has it. Honor is an interesting thing because it has to do with kind of how we relate to and speak of and treat one another, right? We, um, we, we, uh, it's important for us, I think rightly so, that other people will think well of us or speak well of us. We, we like that, right? We, we, we don't like it when we're the outcast or people think badly of us or, you know, that's, that's a hard place to live and a hard place to be. Sometimes Christ calls us to that, to be the outcast, to be the one that people sneer at. Can you think of a king and savior who had to deal with some of that? Yeah, Jesus was an outcast. Right? He had his group, he had his friends, but by and large, he's rejected. And in the end, that's to say before his resurrection, he's rejected by everyone. Everyone. His best friends, all the people around him are gone. He's by himself with his heavenly father approaching the cross. That's a tough place to be. It takes an enormous amount of strength to be faithful in that particular context. And, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ did. He pulled through. He did what his Father called him to do and laid down his life, even by himself, so that he wouldn't be by himself, so that he redeemed the people. He redeemed his brothers. He redeemed the people. And he'll look back at the travail of his soul and say, it was worth it. It was worth it for you, for your family, for your salvation. Jesus says it was worth it. Suffering these indignities and suffering that cursed death was worth it. But honor is something that we, we thrive or we, we desire. We, we seek to be honored and seek to be held in, in high esteem. I think all of us have that. We all have that desire. Or at least not to be held in low esteem. <laughs> you know, that, that might be another side of it. And as I was kind of reading and thinking in the ancient world, the, even the word and in the medieval world, the word honor kind of had more purchase power. Right? It's not something you hear very much nowadays. You might think, oh, is that like what the Marines have? Don't they have honor? Or something, you know, like this. Anyway, the word doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to capture us on an ordinary daily basis. And 
certainly in the ancient world, honor was something. Right? People sought honor just like they see kind of honor and reputation today in, in, our, in our world. Um, and that's the way things are. That's the way people are. And that, can be, that certainly can be pressed into sin and is a great basis for a lot of sin when we seek our own honor. Paul turns it around. He says, don't seek your own honor. Certainly you want to be honorable, and it would be nice to be honored, but you will be honored if this goes on, where you seek to outdo one another in honoring each other. In other words, you're not seeking to honor yourself, to lay it on, you're seeking to give it away. I had a friend, I played goalkeeper, soccer, through high school, and there were always goalkeepers that were just simply better than me at my same level. That's why I was never going to start, and I was never going to be like varsity starter, all that kind of stuff. There's two guys. There's a Swenson family, and they ate and slept soccer. That's what that family did. And uh, my friend Joel's older brother is Aaron. doesn't really matter to you, but he was just a star, star soccer player. And he, he went from middle school up into high school, and the high school coach said, oh, great, we've got a big head soccer player here. He's going to be a ball hog. But what he really did in the, in the tryouts, the tryouts the, the coach was talking about, is he'd get the ball and just he'd make other people look good. He'd, he'd, he'd organize the plays and get, get other people moving, and that's why he was so good. Right? He, he could motivate and, and help the other players. And I think that's something what's going on here in this. If we're seeking our own honor, if I want you to honor me and I want that, then it's an issue often of pride. I think I'm better and I want to feel better than you and things like that. And that's If we seek honor ourselves, we might fall into that very rapidly. It's a place for sin. It's a place for stumbling. But if we seek to honor others, if we seek to prefer others, if we outdo each other in showing honor and appreciation, then our goal is to give it away. To honor you, to respect you, to give that away. And then in turn, if you're doing that back, then it's all covered. We're not trying to, we're not trying to take, we're trying to give. And in giving, we all receive. Christ is our Redeemer and our example in just this. He came again not to be served, but to serve. Look at, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. This famous passage. We tried to sing it, if you recall. Uh, <laughs> didn't work very well. But I'm going to read this, the, this big passage here at the beginning of the, of the chapter, which everyone knows and everyone's heard. And, and uh, But listen, especially to this idea of, of not seeking one's own honor, but seeking to give it away. Seeking to honor and respect other people and, and, and have their ends in mind. Chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, please complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition, there we go, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Just pausing right there. So we have biblical commands that I think are hard, right? But it doesn't say, hey, be entirely selfless. You don't matter. You don't matter a bit, right? Some people like to say, oh, I, I pour my life into other people, and I don't even take care of myself. So, well, that's foolish. That's not being obedient, because you're to love your neighbor as yourself, you need to love yourself faithfully before God and love your neighbor. And there are lots of ways to mess that up. But this is an example here of, of, of or at least in commands right down the middle. Take care of yourself and take care of your neighbor. Have their, look out for your own interests, but look for theirs first. Be selfless. Look to the good of the others. Moving on here. 
having this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. So here's the basis of the whole thing. Here's how you're going to do it. You're going to look to Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, this, this uh, we call it Carmen Christi, or the hymn of Christ. Uh, the, like many things, Paul's picking up a hymn from the early church. Uh, he's not writing these things. He's picking up what's already going on in the church and uh, this, the faithful sayings and things like that that are, that are part of the early church. And so uh, this hymn would appear to be as well. So we have the light of Christ. We have God the Son humbling himself as a servant, a slave, and even a slave who was being put to death, the cursed death of the cross. We have all of that humility and all of that for us. For us. Christ gave himself for us. He who inhabits the heights of heaven is God. God the Son, eternal, became a man, a slave, a cursed slave for us. And God then raised him up from there to give him a name that's above every name. So there's the pattern. There's the doing. There's what Machen called the, the happening. Christ did this thing. Christ came and humbled himself and went to the death on the cross and was raised. Those things happened. But then God, by his Holy Spirit, makes that happen in us as well. We don't go to the cross and give ourselves to death for other people, but we follow Christ. We trust in him that he did it for us, but we also follow him. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. That's what the scriptures call us to. Trust in Jesus who gave himself as an offering for our sins, whom God raised up from the dead, never to die again. And obey him. Follow him. Be like him. So Christ is our example of showing honor. Of, of putting others before him. Serving them. So Christian, as we exist in our body here, we look to Christ who gave himself. And we want to seek to follow him to do as he's done. And so we look for ways to honor one another. We look for ways to extend respect and kindness one to another. Indeed, to outdo one another in showing honor. This brings us down to the third phrase in verse 11. Get back there. The ESV has, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And I figure you can look in your other translations you have in there. This particular verse is not, again, easy to translate. Um, I have some, something of literal. Uh, not lacking in the eagerness, boiling in the spirit, being slaves to the Lord. And so I'll say that one again. Not lacking in eagerness, or the eagerness. Not lacking in eagerness, but boiling in the spirit. And I think those who kind of hang together as, as kind of two sides of one, one thought. Not lacking in eagerness, or again in the ESV, do not be slothful in zeal. Okay, eagerness or zeal, what's, what's that? What are we talking about in the Christian life about eagerness or zeal? 
Well, Kristen, we're talking about your excitement. We're talking about if you're excited about being in the Lord in your service to Him. Now, knowing the Lord and walking with Him is, in some sense, kind of like being married, right? Like, there's a period of time in your life that you come together as husband and wife or as, as man and wife that there's terrific excitement, right? There's just an enormous amount of energy around this, this person and this relationship. And as our relationship settles in and becomes founded and, 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 and lived for a number of years, that excitement doesn't stay the same, right? The, the, you don't have that initial impulse of, of excitement. But God willing, you have other exciting things about that person that come in and fill out and build up that relationship where you're still happy to be with them. You're still joyful to be with this person, even though you don't have the, like, the, you know, the heady days, like the heady emotions of those early days. That's, what's talk- that's, I think, what's being talked about here. It makes me think of the church of Ephesus that we read last week, I think, from Genesis chapter 1 or 2. Um, I think, or, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 2, where, where Jesus says to the church, you've left your first love. Right? Love me like you used to love me. Do the works you used to do, Jesus says, or what? Or I'll come away and take, I'll come take away your candlestick. I'll come take away your testimony. I'll come remove the church from Ephesus. Christian, Jesus removed the church from Ephesus. It was overrun by Islam, and the church is destroyed. There are bits and pieces, but it's not like it was. Of course, that, that, that uh, Asia Minor, we call it Turkey now, is the cradle, the cradle of early Christianity. It's not really Jerusalem. It's not the environs around Jerusalem. It's not really Alexandria, though those places are important. It's Turkey, right? It's Asia Minor, where the church really is thriving and growing in those early years. And Christ says, you better repent, Christian, and love me the way you're supposed to love me. Or I'll come take your candlestick. And indeed, he did. You might think it doesn't matter if you're not really zealous for the Lord. If you're just kind of ho-hum, it doesn't matter so much. But let me tell you, not only is it a personal issue between you and the Lord, but it's an issue that we share. Right? If you come and you're not zealous for the Lord and you're just kind of ho-hum and dragging your feet, well, that makes people kind of drag around you. Right? If you come to the Lord's house or just meet with Christians or on a daily basis and you're fired up, you're excited because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and you're never going to die in Him. You have eternal life and you've been put as a prophet, priest, and king on this earth right now to witness for Christ. That also has an impact on people around you. Your zeal impacts the people around you. And your lack of zeal impacts the people around you. So we're striving for eagerness. That's what the text says here. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Be fervent in spirit. And again, that's the kind of literal translation. Be boiling in the spirit. And that could be in the Holy Spirit or just in your own spirit. Um, It's hard to know what, because again, the the writing is so condensed here. Um, but just think in our own spirits. The simple way, say, don't, don't be dull, don't be lazy, don't be spiritually indolent. Christian, be excited. Take a look at who you are in Christ Jesus and get excited about it. Do that thing, do it first in the morning. Get up and meet the Lord and say, okay, God, I want to be excited. I want to serve you well today. I want to be full of zeal. Would you give that to me? Would you give me a day full of zeal 
to you and not full of indolence or distractions of other things that aren't so important as your zealous seeking of the Lord and your faithfully being exuberant about this one who's given you all things in Christ Jesus. So we don't want false enthusiasm. Okay? We're not trying to like whoop ourselves up and do a frenzy so we are enthusiastic. I, mean, I think you know what I mean. That, that can occur, and especially I think in a lot of worship services uh, that we have different means of getting you excited. We've got the fog hog, we've got the lights, we've got some real ripping music, uh, we've got the bass track that will rip your face off. We've got it all up here, so get excited, right? And then once you've got about 30 minutes of shaking the building, okay, well, then maybe you have a sermon. I don't know what else goes on. Uh, but, ma'am, I, I know people who lived and died by that excitement. If they didn't have that excitement, it's like they weren't, they were, the Lord wasn't even really real, and they weren't really worshiping. They had to be like, amped up. That's worship is when they get amped up. Well, Christian, you need to be amped up sometimes. Okay? But you don't need to be manipulated into being amped up so you can have experience and have a feeling. We want to pursue faithful enthusiasm to the Lord by His Spirit, by His means, and not trick ourselves with all sorts of false enthusiasms, and they, that takes many forms. False enthusiasm takes many forms. Uh, I might think of the rocky soil faith. Right? Those in the, in the parable of the sower, that is the main parable, without which if you don't understand, you won't understand any of the parables. Okay? But there's, there's part of that parable where the, the, sower, the sower sows the seed, and some of it falls on rocky soil. What happens? It springs up, springs up, and then it dies out because it has no root. And Jesus says, that's someone who receives the word with joy. But then they fall away because they have no root. I think sometimes there's, the, as I was just kind of alluding to before, this emotional release as Christians where, you know, we live in suburban neighborhoods and never shout or scream at anybody. I don't know what it is for us, but and we, 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 we want a place where we can have an emotional release or emotional orgasm, and that's, that's really that's what worship is. But that's not really worship either. Maybe that involves some of that, but if that's our aim, if that's what we're shooting at, that's a false enthusiasm that we're, we're firing at. There's also, of course, what we could say, ignorant zeal or ignorant enthusiasm. Here from Romans 10. There is, there is ignorant zeal. This Paul says, For I can testify about them, that is, the Jews. He's speaking of the, the Jews after the flesh, earthly Jews. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's Righteousness. So here we're talking about a zeal for God. You can think of, some of you have been to Israel, and you can think of you know, Judaism through the, through the ages, and even right now. There's a zeal for God, certainly in antiquity. Like I think the modern state of Israel, unless I'm mistaken, is atheistic, um, or close to it. But the ancient state of Israel certainly wasn't. There's a zeal for God. Right? They want to know God, but, but they do it ignorantly. Their zeal doesn't have knowledge. And the knowledge is of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like they didn't go to school long enough, or they didn't get a degree. That's not the issue. They have many Jews who are massively educated. Paul's one of them. But he didn't, Paul's another example himself. He says he had ignorant zeal. Paul's zeal against the church, uh, before his encounter on the road to Damascus, was ignorant zeal. He was was zealous for the Lord, but ignorantly so. He says this, For as zeal, persecuting the church, for as righteousness, based on the law, faultless. From Philippians chapter 3, is full zeal. For the Lord. But it was wrong. And it was murderous. And it was unfaithful. So not all zeal is good zeal. Okay? Not all excitement is good excitement. And don't, let's not get tricked by not only religious shysters who want to like whip people up and 
you know, flee some. That certainly goes on. But, but those who even think it's the right thing to do to get people, just to get you excited. Well, you should be excited, Christian. Who should be more excited than you? Who in this world, with what we're doing, should be more excited than a Christian? Saying we have forgiveness of sins in Christ. He's, he's been put to death. He's been raised from the dead. I'm forgiven. I'm God's child. I'm part of this family. And no one can take me out of God's hand. Who's stronger than God? Oh, Christian, we have an enormous hope of resurrection and a new heavens and new earth. Who has more reason for excitement than someone who says, I'm a wicked sinner, but I'm in Christ Jesus. He's my king. He's my savior. And I want to follow him. I want to repent and be excited about what God is doing in my life and in the world around me and in the church. We want a God-given zeal. Not one that we drum up ourselves. Not one that we just make up and you know, try to force ourselves to be excited. We want a God-given zeal. And that looks a certain way. Listen to Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's part of the, uh, that's part of the zeal for the Lord, is to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are already zealous for good works. There's the zeal we're really looking for. A zeal of a life lived to God. Not just high points of excitement, Though we should have high points of excitement. That's part of our lives. You know, someone brings out a bowl of ice cream, that should be a high point of excitement for you. That's a good thing that's put in front of you. It's a happy thing. Okay, well, there are highs and lows in the Christian life, but here it is. Renouncing godliness and being zealous for good works. That is the zeal of the Christian life. Not just being excited, but being excited in the right avenues and in the right ways that honor God by trusting in the one he has sent and obeying. Trust and obey. So seek the Lord. Christian, for zeal, for excitement. Seek the Lord for earnestness. Seek the Lord for adventure in the Christian life. There's much adventure to be had in serving the Lord. We don't have to go outside Christ to find any of those things. They're in Christ. And Christians, seek them in the Lord. Say, God, give me this zeal. Give me the desire to put off the old man, to be renewed in the spirit of my mind, to put on the new. Give me excitement about being with the local church and with these brothers and sisters, most of whom I kind of don't like. But God, make me like them. Help me. Help me be a faithful brother in this, in this congregation where you put me. Give me these things that you command of me. Which, which rehearses, of course, not only the Psalm 119 that we read this morning. There's a little piece in there like that that I didn't bring out. But that famous prayer from Augustine. God, command whatever you want. But give me what you command. Allow me to do what it is you command me to do. Because without you doing that, I'm not going to do it. Right? Unless God works in us both to will and to do. We're not going to will or do. So seek the Lord, Christian, for zeal, for excitement, for earnestness, for adventure. Seek the Lord. Ask Him for these things in Christ Jesus and see what He gives you. Now the last piece is the name of the point. That is the third point here in the sermon, which is zealous slaves. So the last phrase there in verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord here in the ESV, which is be slaves to the Lord. Be enslaved. That's your, that's, your, that's, that's your status, is you're a slave to the Lord. 
Now, we tend to think of slavery as a, like a bad word, because we're Americans and it's bad. Slavery's bad. It's just bad, and that's all there is to say about it. Bad, bad, bad. Um, okay, we'll get past all that, um, because the Bible's full of slavery and masters, not only in the common realm, um, but in the spiritual realm. Right? We're certainly called brothers of Christ, our older brother. We're in the family of God, but we're kind of a family of slaves, which in the ancient world was not a misnomer at all. The slaves were part of the family and, 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 and seen as part of the family. Well, God's got a, a, a huge family he's building of slaves. We're slaves together. Christ Jesus is our master. Now, what do we know about masters and slaves? Masters tell you what to do, slaves hear it, and do it. <laughs> That's like the deal. It's pretty simple. Uh, the master commands, the slave obeys. And that's the nature here. Be, a, be a, a slave to the Lord. Be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, Christians, we're co-slaves together. Together we are slaves. We're like kind of brothers in arms in a family, and we serve the son of that family, the Lord Jesus Christ we are slaves to the one who came. And looking, thinking back to the Philippians passage, the Son of God emptied himself and became a what? Slave. He became a servant. He became slave in order to give himself as a ransom for, unto death to receive, to receive us as slaves in him. So we're, again, we're just following Christ. We're just looking to him. He's already done it perfectly, and we're following him. He was a faithful slave. He obeyed his father he laid down his life, and his father raised him back up. And so we lay down our lives. We obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his slaves. So, like a good slave, do your work. Okay, that's what slaves are supposed to do, right? They're not supposed to sit around and say, okay, good, I get that. And not do the work. <laughs> they got to go do the work. Sure, get what's said and, and respond by being obedient and doing the work. So we have work that's common to humanity. Slave. Christian, brother, we have to love God. We love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Loving our neighbor as ourselves is something that we have in common with all humanity. As Christians, we certainly have been called to love God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, eternally blessed. Love our neighbor and love and worship the triune God. These are some of the things that God requires of you as a slave. Love your neighbor and love and worship Him. But he also has things that are particular to our stations in life. And we don't all have the same station. We don't all have the same particulars in life where we find ourselves. We find ourselves, all of us, in one way or another, as part of family, which ties in with this sermon, in the family of God. But God's put us in our own families as well. And uh, for a child, we have, a particular, we have particular responsibilities as children to our parents, to our siblings. Those are things that God's put upon you. Do them. As a faithful slave, do what God's called you to do as a child or as a parent. It's easy to shirk the responsibilities as a parent. We get lost in stuff and work's really crazy and this and that. And we shirk our, our responsibilities before God in Christ as parents. Be busy about being a parent in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or a grandparent or an auntie and uncle. We find ourselves in all these different positions and stations in life. God's given you those responsibilities. He's put you in those places Therefore, be faithful there. Do what God says to do as a child, as a parent, as a grandparent, as an auntie and uncle, and so on. How about at work? 
We spend most of our time working, don't we? Most of our waking hours are spent working one way or another, whether it's to earn money or to do other things that God's made us to work. And he's mostly made us slaves and, and masters during the day. right? So the Bible address is not employees and employers, but slaves and masters. And to be a slave was your job. It was your outfit. You listened to your master and you obeyed during the day. And it was not only to be done to them well, but as worship to God. Right, so the things that you're doing during the day, whether it's school, or through studying, or your, your, your labors in the home, oftentimes, especially a lot of you ladies are working at home, got kids, and homeschooling, that kind of thing, and fathers involved in that, that's the work you have to do. God's given you that work to do. Do it well as slaves. Maybe you're a master during the day. Maybe you run a business, or you, you have uh, some authority over other people. That would be more a master kind of position where you're telling other people what to do, and they say, okay, and do it, ideally. Um, that you're a faithful master. The Bible addresses this directly, in Ephesians and in Colossians both. Go, go read them, and, but this is part of God's command to you as a slave, overall, of to what you're going to do with your life. You're going to discharge the duties, uh, not only within your family, but also at work, and work well for the Lord. And we have different ages, too, just to think about it. And we, we oftentimes, maybe it's partly my place in life, because I'm a parent, and I've got you know, a range of little ones, but I want to focus on being a little one, you little ones. Right? God's called you to himself now. We often talk because you're going to school and you're preparing for the future, right? We say, well, God's got stuff for you to do in the future. True enough. But listen, God has stuff for you to do right now, little one. And it doesn't matter how old you are. God's called you to himself. You're his. You're baptized into Christ Jesus. You belong to him. You're his servant now. It's not just that you're preparing, though you are preparing for greater works later. But those greater works later will happen as you're faithful with the little works now. God calls you now, children, to his service, not just later. What about the old, the aged? Sometimes I think in a, just a, a small version of this, a five-year experience, in, so five full years as an undergraduate, I have to use the extra one just you know for kicks or whatever, but I know it's the fifth year of being in college, I didn't really know very many people. Right? There's this kind of period where I didn't know many people at the beginning, in the middle where I knew lots of folks, and then people graduated, and it's like you get there at the end, and say, like, oh, I don't really know anybody. And I think that's somewhat analogous to late in life. You can think of my grandfather's mom, Tutu, talking and saying, I don't know why God still has me here. All my friends have died. They're all gone, right? And so you, get, you kind of get alone at the end of life. And, and, you, and I'm not there, and I don't know it. I've read some books or whatever and saw some movies. You're there, maybe. But God's called you to serve there, too. It's not like, yeah, I served the Lord back when I had energy. Now I don't, because, no, no, no. God's called you to serve right now in your capacity. And I don't know what that is, elderly, but I do know that it's something that you need to sow into what's coming behind you. The old men need to, we younger men need the help of the older men, and our younger guys in particular, and the same thing with the ladies. There are ministries for you to pour into in your own church, using your gifts, like we've just talked about in the past weeks here among the body of Christ. So again, a lot of our applications focused on kind of adulthood and, and parenthood and things like that, but God gets us at all areas of life. It says, as a child, you're going to serve me as a child. And as, as an elderly person, you're going to serve me as an elderly person. You still belong to the Lord. Your life is still His, not yours, from your youth all the way to your death. And God calls you to be a good, faithful slave as you serve Him in all these different capacities. Finally, in this, in this idea of slaveship, 
God's put different things on each of our hearts. Now, sometimes I think we talk, this is where it kind of becomes murky and difficult. The, the, the positions he's put you in in life are pretty clear. You're a daughter, you're a son, you're a sister, you're a brother, you're a parent. You know, those things kind of are clear, and the Bible speaks to those. But what about what God has put on your heart to do? Some work, some things that God's just made you interested in you want to do. Well, Christian, if those are in keeping with the law of God, go for it. Do what God's put on your heart to do. Be an obedient slave. Follow that thing that God's put on your heart if it's lawful. If you can gather Christians around you to help you do that thing, do it. Fire away. Pour on the gas. Don't wait for someone's permission. Serve the Lord. Be a slave to the Lord. And all these capacities are in your own very heart with what you want to do and what you want to pursue. Glorify the Lord in that pursuit. Go and get busy before the face of God. Quorum Deo. So by way of conclusion, the family here is a created metaphor. God made the family so that he could show us the kingdom of God. God constructed the family, the father, the mother, the children, and even the generations, so that he could show us what redemption really is. He could use this created reality as a metaphor for the spiritual redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. God has made us his family. And we want the church to be like a well-running family, a faithful family, full of brotherly love, outdoing one another in showing honor and being zealous slaves together. That's what God's called us to as a family. Therefore, behold the rich and eternal love of our Heavenly Father who sent Jesus Christ, His Son. Behold the grace of Jesus, the willing slave who gave Himself up to death for us. And behold the zeal and the energy of the Holy Spirit who connects us with the living Christ. May we serve Him faithfully, trusting in Jesus. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. That's the way of the Christian family, the family of God. Amen.